this morning. Um, I thought it was hilarious. Don't think that I was not going to come in there and call you on it. Like We're we're recording in 15 minutes and he's in here like... Redacted. Redacted. This is great. Guy who just told you you should be fucking embarrassed to ask us to... to Redacted. Dude, I honestly, I honestly missed that he had said that part. I... Yeah, he's Look, pretty I don't agree with that part. I don't agree with yeah, that part. Fine. But I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the take itself is fine. I, I have no problem with, yeah, the redacted. And I, I also think it's really easy for redacted to feel unheard mm-hmm. because no matter what, redacted, 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 and there's just no way around that. And you know, if you line up with redacted, as far as Redacted, redacted, redacted. That's totally fine. That's a perfectly reasonable opinion. I mean, that's part of the question that we're trying to ask. Everyone's allowed to, to have their takes. My whole thing was just, I don't agree with redacted. I just wanted redacted, redacted. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, redacted. Knew I wasn't I trying was, to attack you. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> It's like I'm yeah, about okay. to go on your podcast. You're trying to rally yeah. me up here so you get some spice. This is what's <laughs> I see I see what you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely not the case. We, although although that would have been an interesting tactic. We damn, we I should put not, that in my back pocket. We are not that galaxy brain. I want to be very clear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm pretty I'm barely good at Netrunner. You think I'm good at social interaction and social manipulation? <laughs> Jesus. And I- Hello, and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I'm your co-host, Neuropancer, and I am allergic to paying one credit to draw one card. And I'm your other co-host, Josh, a.k.a. Orbital Tangent, still Netrunner's OKS player. This podcast, if this is the first time that you have ever accessed the Slums Cast, I'm afraid to say if you came here expecting it to make you good at Netrunner, it will not do that unless you're already good at Netrunner because it will not make you better at Netrunner. It also will not make you a better person. So similar caveat there. We are joined by a special guest today. Josh, do you want to introduce our special guest? He is one of the leaders of the standard ban list. He is a submariner going down to the depths and then rising above. It is Ajar. How are you doing, Ajar? I'm having a pretty good day. Thank you. Excellent. Very nice. Good to hear that. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. We're going to begin, as tradition always states, with an intro statement. As we know, the intro statement is the first thing that we do every single episode of the Slums Cast. And the intro statement is startup sucks. Now, before everyone gets all up in a huff about the fact that I just said startup sucks, I do want to be very clear GLC, please don't flame me, flame Josh, because Josh wrote that. I did not write that statement. I am blaming him. I honestly, personally, have not even looked at Startup because it didn't seem like it was very interesting. Also, however, in the interest of creating beef, I haven't because it looks like it sucks. Ajar, what do you think? Why does Startup suck? (laughs) Well, let's just assume for the sake of argument that I accept the premise. The short reason is that startup is an uncurated and largely untested format. It's some sets that were not particularly designed to go together and weren't really tested at all. And nobody's looking at doing, you know, a ban list or anything like that for it at the moment, sort of the wild west. And that is okay in the sense of it being an on-ramp for newer players. So maybe that's fine. 
or maybe it needs some more attention as it seems to be catching on and gaining some popularity. A huge amount of popularity from what we've heard in recent episodes. It sounds like a lot of people playing it. If it was not already high profile, it's pretty high profile right now. I would say that I agree with you that it's a decent on-ramp for newer players in that the format does appear to have some sort of reward in figuring out deck building, figuring out deck synergies. However, I wrote the premise because I believe for established players and people who have been playing the game for a while, when you figure out which cards go together in the format, some of those decks are mildly abusive as far as taking advantage of stackable effects that really either put the corp in hell or the runner in hell. And I don't think that at the top level, some of those decks are particularly interesting or fun to play. A good example would be what I like to call criminal all the monies, bravado and dirty laundry and penny shaver and just pretty much every money card that's good and criminal and you just shove it in a deck. Doesn't even really matter what the idea is, but Zaya, I think, is probably the best. More money, right? There's nothing the Corp can really do like they can in Standard with HHN or, or punishing early runs. So you just run everywhere and make money. But on the flip side, Corp, I find most of my decks starting with three Gold Farmer, three Engram Flush, and three Spin Doctor. I don't know. I think that's a problem. Isn't that a problem? <laughs> well, Farmer is banned in Standard for good reasons. I mean, obviously there are cards that are legal in startup that are banned in standard like Kayambe and Gold Farmer. It's true that, that those cards are probably less oppressive in startup than they are in standard, but that doesn't mean that the format couldn't be improved with some attention. It's sort of an interesting case in that part of the reason that we went to a ban list only format for standard was that it's simple and intuitive. It's just a list of cards. You can't play any of them. You don't have to memorize some list of unicorns you can only have one from or play some kind of meta game with your influence to figure out how you can build a deck. When we look at startup, I think that if there were to be some sort of list for startup, we would probably want to keep it man list only for the same reasons. But weirdly, I think that it might even be hard, a little harder to do mm -hmm. in startup than in standard because the card pool is smaller. And so the effects of banning any powerful card are bigger. I don't think that the team that does the standard ban list, which I'm on, will be taking on startup as well. We've definitely got our hands full with standard, but it would not surprise me to see another team formed within Nisei, especially out of the pool of the latest round of recruitment. Some of the folks who asked about joining our team uh, talked about being interested in startup. So we may make a separate team, try to give it a little bit more TLC. To push back on the premise a little bit, I think we're touching on one of the things that actually is good about startup, which is its simplicity. One of the beautiful things about startup is you can just tell someone who's just joined the game, you have these cards and you just make a deck. All you have to know are the rules of Netrunner. You don't have to know anything about what cards are currently banned in a tournament. You just need to know what cards are in the pool. And that is really nice in some ways. But if the sets in question were not necessarily designed for a format like that, it's difficult for that to be the top level experience play-wise right out of the box. I would argue yeah, that you but... still maintain that if you are looking at the Gateway Complete Pack, because it's designed to be a deck builder pack. Startup can be somebody's first tournament experience, along with the things that are entailed in a tournament, such as ban lists. 
Yeah, I can see both sides of that coin. I don't really know which one ends up being better. I think that a big part of startup also will be the fact that it's going to cycle much faster than standard does. Startup is most of the card pool rotates when a new set drops. <laughs> it's an entirely new format. Huh. So when the next cycle comes out, all of Ashes rotates out of startup. Yeah, that's wild to think about. Farmer goes away, Flush goes away, Kayambe goes mm -hmm. away, et cetera. A lot of those things that are, Bologna goes away, a lot of those things that mm -hmm. are currently seen as potentially problematic in startup are going to rotate. In standard, right? Every time rotation happens, decks break because they lose fundamental things. You know, Inject is gone, Anarch is now suddenly incredibly slow, but you still have knob curie as an alternate win condition or you still have the bin breakers as the way that you break ice imagine all of those rotating at once that's basically what happens with startup that's crazy right and it's every time so i think that the notion of like a ban list for startup or something more complicated than that is even more challenging in a way the format changes so quickly so we have a bonus intro question to go along with the intro statement and not to put mm -hmm. you too much on the spot. So you really only have to paint in broad strokes here. But you personally, Raja, it, knowing what you know about startup and having played it, what would you do to start to assess any imbalances? Startup is interesting. I think that startup has a little bit of the problem that standard had the last couple of years prior to the gateway release in that some of the issues that the format is perceived to have at the moment are not really fixable with tweaks to its own card pool. And one big example of that is the near complete absence of any sort of tagging strategy from the format, mm -hmm. even though Reality Plus is in the format, Psychographics is in the format. I certainly have not seen anyone actively trying to land tags as anything other than some nice drip tempo for Reality Plus. So like, for example, Startup Corp at the moment is punitive Reality Plus, and I'm really only in R Plus because I can be 40 cards and run six agendas and uh, a bunch of taxing ice. And then I just sort of wait around and let the runner kill themselves. <laughs> which, you know, it sounds a lot like Potatoes, which is a deck that we went to great lengths to ban in standards. So that lends itself a little bit to what Josh was saying earlier about some of the potential problems with the format. I think I find myself doing the same thing. Punitive actually seems like a format-defining card. I build mostly punitive decks, and then, as I said, start everything with Engram Flush and Gold Farmer. Yeah, because you can, right? So the corp win conditions in the format are what they are, right? Punitive is there, Neurospike is there, Skunk works, Anoetic Void are there, Kayambe is there, and what else? Right. Psychographics is there, but like I said, it's it's pretty fringe without any serious ability to land more than one tag. If you had a billion credits, I guess you have biotic plus precision design is there, but who has the money? Yeah, I tried that. Um, quite difficult. San San City Grid is there. Um, mm -hmm. I've tried to play faster biotics at home, and boy, it is uh, it is a sad echo of its former glory. Mm -hmm. Not that its former glory wasn't totally busted. <laughs> To be clear, I'm not suggesting that faster on startup should be as good as faster used to be. I'm just reflecting on my long history with this game. I think that one thing to keep in mind with balancing startup is, and I'm not in any way saying that this is not a format that we want people to play. I'm not in any way saying that startup shouldn't be good and shouldn't be a good self-contained experience, but 
I do think that one of the best ways to help out startup is have a robust, healthy standard format that if you get to the point where you think you figured out startup, if you get to the point where you say, oh man, I keep making these punitive decks and I keep making these bravado decks and nothing's really beating them and you want to explore more, it should be extremely easy to jump over to standard and extremely fun to do so. Or an extremely easy to, if you get bored there, jump over to throwback or to cube or to just having other ways to play Netrunner is very good. And I think is a healthy way to offboard yourself from startup if you get bored with it. I absolutely agree with that. I think that the game is better when there there's a range of formats available for people to try so that people can do the kinds of things that they want, which can easily change over time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've certainly heard people say that, you know, format proliferation can fracture their player base and things like that and, and can be a problem for a game of our size. But I tend to disagree. I feel like if people are working on alternative formats, it's out of passion for the game, right? Mm -hmm. And there is never going to be one format to rule them all. I mean, I think it's likely that uh, standard will remain the largest format, but that doesn't need to be by a huge margin necessarily. I mean, there there needs to be, you know, a primary format for the competitive tournament season. That's likely always going to be standard. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that there can't be, for example, at the store championship level, we could let people run tournaments in whatever format they might care to run them. And people already do that in GNKs and whatever happens outside of that with, you know, community events, charity events, and things like that, and alternative formats. I'm all for that kind of stuff. You know, the more people who are doing it, the more people who are interested and curious about what the game can offer. I will say that as someone who's been playing this game since the days of original Netrunner, which at this point is literally more than 20 years, it's quite remarkable how far the rules of this game can be stretched, what like just what the framework will really accommodate. And I mean, even beyond what we've seen in Eternal, top level original Netrunner decks that don't have the uh, three per deck card limit get absolutely off the chain. And yet the basic framework of, you know, taking clicks or actions as they used to be called is still there. The game is still weirdly Netrunner. Long story short, the more people trying stuff and experimenting with stuff, thinking about what formats can look like and what makes a given format good and giving us their thoughts, what they think we should do with the existing formats, all of that is good and healthy and should be encouraged. I was going to say it previously. I hadn't considered what you were saying there about having startup be a funnel and leaving the format largely untouched as sort of, uh, what is the word, solvable sort of format. And if you solve it fine, then go on to standard, which we're going to be curating more thoroughly with bands and things of that nature. So I hadn't really considered that angle. And that makes a lot of sense to keep it as something like that. So you've changed my perspective a little bit. (laughs) And to be clear, I'm not saying that it should purely function as a funnel that we know is broken and we funnel people out of at some point, it should still be a good format because if a Mm. lot of people play it as their way Mm. into Netrunner, we want that to be fun. We want that to be something you can go to the local game shop and play a couple rounds of and really have a good time. But I think it's okay if after doing that for a certain amount of time, you then naturally find yourself gravitating towards playing standard. I personally believe that if it was to be used as a competitive format in any capacity, even at just like the store champs level, I would prefer that there would be at least a small ban list to remove some Mm -hmm. of the most abusive strategies. But I can 
concede that it's not unfun to play at this point. I think that the tournament format itself would inherently curb some of the worst abuses that I've seen in startups. So for example, the punitive reality plus deck that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. takes anywhere between 40 and 60 minutes to actually <gasps> Single sided so please. <laughs> so I wouldn't take it to a tournament because I'd mm-hmm. go to time and I would lose on time, mm-hmm. most likely. Some of that, I think, is self correcting in the tournament environment. I think on the topic of having multiple formats, that being a sign of health of the game, in no way am I suggesting that we should model decisions that we make purely based off of things that are done in other games. But I do think that that is a cool thing about Magic the Gathering as a game. The way that it used to be at their very, very highest levels of play, the Pro Tour, where you would have different Pro Tours with different formats. There would be a Pro Tour where all you play is standard, Pro Tour where all you play is draft. It actually used to be a few different types of draft even. Like you would Rochester and then you would booster draft. And then you would have an entire format where you have their limited constructed formats like block constructed. And then you go to the world championships and you have to play all three of them. You have to play some days of limited, you have to play some days of standard, and you have to play some days of like their extended formats like modern or whatever. And I think that that actually is a pretty cool statement to make about your world championships where you say the world championship of magic is not the person who has standard solved, not the person who has limited solved. It's the person who has the union of all of those skills. That is that's uh, really cool. That's a high bar for a champ. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of diversity of formats, I will say one format that I miss terribly and I wish I had more opportunity to play is NAPD multiplayer. Mm. I adored that format. Mm. You know, it has some problems. It kind of needs its own. You have to sort of make your own ban list for it for the table and Mm. say, you know, as a corp, I'm not going to play these cards. And the runners all agree that they're not going to play certain certain things. Uh, like they were not all going to play, you know, three Fisk investment seminars and just, oh, decade, God. <laughs> and just call it a day. And three but, mining accidents. But that format, for at least for me anyway, I found it immensely enjoyable to play. And I, yeah. I wish I had more time and opportunity to give it some run. But being on the standard balance team is almost all consuming as far as my netrunner time. And honestly, if we're on the topic of alternative formats... We've talked at length on this cast before about how much we love the King of Servers format. Honestly, though, that is a really fun way to play Netrunner, having actual team tournaments. Like, obviously, the way that things are divided up in the King of Servers format is awesome. Another interesting idea could be unified deck lists, where basically, with the exception of maybe some core cards like Hedge Fund and Sure Gamble, you can only have three total copies of a card across a team. Do you think that that would really add that much beyond the faction limits that the normal King of Service format already has? Absolutely no idea. Have not played with that at all. No testing whatsoever. I think it's an interesting idea, at least. Mm -hmm. I just wonder about the deck building overhead for the team Mm -hmm. relative to the actual amount of change it would make in the format. I guess the only thing it really does is guarantee that you can't have a team that's all Apocalypse decks, for instance. Right. But I mean, if your team wants to do that out of every faction... That's fantastic. That's, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of one of the fun fun things of King of Servers, right? Is the those push your luck decks, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the team that goes all in on a theme and rides it all the way to the bottom of the tournament or the middle of the tournament. Yeah. Um, yep. It's always super fun to hear the cheers go up. And I'm certainly not saying that I'm hearing them from the top of the tournament. <laughs> Far from it. I have had some bad days. You know, that spirit of 
fun and experimentation is is part of what makes King of Servers what it is. It might not have been an official theme, but uh, our King of Servers team, if I remember correctly, three of the four decks were playing turntable. I guess good consoles uh, as like the the theme for the team. I guess I was the odd one out there because I was on Geist, which was obviously not playing yep. turntable. This was the last King of Servers, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was on Geist, but I think I was on turntable. Whoa. Should have had you wow. on game, apparently. Bold. Very bold. Why not both? <laughs> we can drink in the giant brain juice there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> plus, it was it was two influence, you know? So yeah. I was like, okay, okay. Spend my two influence here. Before we move on, you were talking about the card limits, like across teams. I think that actually might be one of the cooler ways to curb some of the runner abuses that you can have in mm-hmm. NAPD. That is a galaxy brain idea for NAPD, actually. I like that a lot. I mean, the most troubling thing as the corp is just having runners stack on <laughs> the same effect that cards. there should only yep. be three of. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So that's actually kind of like a cool way that I hadn't thought of to balance that format. And then the mm-hmm. other thing that I wanted to pick up on was alternative formats. I actually did come up with an NAPD solitaire deck. <laughs> so you can actually play Netrunner by yourself what this is is it's a deck where you use the ability the starting ability of napd and see if you can score seven on the first turn it works and you can do it but like it takes some brain on whether or not you should like mulligan him and how to set up your combo uh, within the rules version of uh, of goldfishing ci7 which i certainly yeah. have done a lot of in my time yeah that's basically what it is it's it's napd seven Presumably, you probably shouldn't have a turn zero kill deck in Netrunner. So presumably, a couple cards from that probably need to get banned or restricted if that becomes a competitive format. I think that you... I mean, even if it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I true. think that you would probably just do restrictions in that format because the player that can combo the easiest is the NAPD. And mm-hmm. if you just really take those combos away with restrictions you're probably fine. Probably also want to look at Apocalypse in that format because the corp doesn't get a turn to recover and the runners can have as many as three turns to capitalize on the Apocalypse, which I have done. uh, I did not think about that. (laughs) I did that to a poor corp at the NAPD intro event that was at the FFG, at the time, the FFG Game Center. There was just, you know, some spidey sense around the table that lined things up and I just said, okay... Here's your window. I can't do oh, anything anymore. No. My my board just got turned face down, but you all go win. Wait, does Apocalypse? Oh, no, not... it doesn't turn down. It doesn't the turn runners. over. Oh my god! It only affects your board and the corpse board, not the other runners. Yeah. Right? Because that feels inactive. like an errata that that feels like an errata that has to happen in that format. Oh, right? that's actually a really thematic errata, isn't it? Yeah. All runner cards get turned face down when anyone yeah. plays an apocalypse. I love that. You, you blow up the entire world. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not an apocalypse if the entire world didn't blow up, right? Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Taking a page from Nisei's book too, like currents work super funky in that format. So they all yeah. should probably just be banned. Mm, true. Because they're inactive when you're not the active runner. And scarcity so... of resources destroys all of the runners. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Oh no. yeah, so basically you can have three currents up on the runner side as they rotate through turns. Yeah. I mean only only yeah. one of them is actually live at a given time, but yes. Correct. Yep. Huh. It's, a, it's a cycle of of unhappy times for the corp. 
and it's so, so hard to clear them. It rotates through the runners. It rotates, okay. Yep. So the corp has an opportunity for every other runner to be the active runner. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so if you time it right, though, your whole team can have currents up. So it's yeah. either oh. you would make the current rules universal or better thing, in my opinion, would be, you know, just ban fucking currents. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think banning them is fine. In fairness, I think I'm on the record multiple times on that and not just because I literally wrote that section of the ban list update that banned them. So, you know, my takes, my takes on currents are out there. And I completely agree with the takes on currents that are out there. Currents are not the best mechanic. We've lost the thread a little bit. We're discussing startup initially. And honestly, I think we've had a fair amount of discussion on startup. The only reason that I bring it back up is y'all are currently running a startup league. And we don't have to get too much into why that happened and what the decision-making was on why startup, given some of the questions we've raised about startup as a format. I'm more interested in You're right. In Cut talking... the feed. I'm more interested in talking about the league part of things. There are probably a number of people out there thinking, I would like to get people in my local meta or people on the small Discord server that I'm on more invested in playing Netrunner more often. And it might be their first time running a league. What sort of advice would you give someone in those sorts of positions? I'll say upfront that I don't have any advice on player recruitment because I don't do any player recruitment. I, uh, I basically let other folks, Greater Twin Cities area slash Minnesota, Netrunner meta handle that stuff. So as far as how to get players, you'll have to consult with somebody else. As far as how to actually run the league, we've done a lot of experimentation over six, seven years in the Twin Cities community with many different formats and venues and so forth. So I think that we've, we've definitely gained some lessons from those. The very, very first thing you need is you need to structure your league in such a way that players are rewarded for playing the game. I think it's better to do that than it is to use a format that punishes players for not playing. You run into this potential problem where it can start to feel like a chore, like, oh, I have to play a league match this week or I'm going to lose some points or I'm going to lose some ELO rating or whatever, right? You want people to want to play because they will get imaginary points for just participating. That's the second really important thing is the rewards should not be only for winning games. You need to be able to play in a league have a chance at whatever the mechanism is for distributing prizes, regardless of whether you win your games or not, because that keeps people interested. So people like accumulating imaginary points and they like not necessarily having to win to do that. The third thing is, I think there's some value in incentivizing people to experiment and explore the meta. You do want some structure to it. So we do one set of Swiss pairings every week. So you get one opponent, you have the entire week to find a time to play a match with that opponent. But on top of that, you can at any time just post, you know, LFG. And if somebody else is around, you can play league games with them. You can report them. You get more points if you win, but you get points just for playing. In addition to that, every week you get points if in your paired match, so the one where the most points are on the line, you play decks you haven't played yet, play new IDs to get your maximum possible points. Like You can play them in open play first if you want to kind of get your feet wet with them or whatever. But you do have to put your weekly pairing on the line with the new decks if you want to actually get credit for exploring the meta. Oh, there's one other piece. We have a rubber band mechanic, a catch-up mechanic, where the top end players in the league, depending on how big the league is, are bounty targets every week. And anyone who's not a bounty target, who beats a bounty target, gets extra points. So that combination of things 
keeps top few slots of the league very much in play more or less the whole way through because you can play play a week where you know you happen to to win one or both of your paired games with new decks and you go play some open play games and double your points and all of a sudden you've climbed up six spots in the rankings and you're in right in, right there in the top cut with players who might have more experience with the game than you do but that's it's not the only thing that drives success in the league and i think that's really important I do like, in particular, with our league, these extra mechanics that incentivize players who aren't necessarily going to be top tournament players when you go to a store champ. It incentivizes them to play, gets them some mechanics where they can, as you say, rubber band back towards the top. And I do like also that there's a little bit of a tournament aspect to it as well, where there is a cut. So the most competitive players have that little bit of like cherry and reward at the end. If they've done well in their games and they've played games and won games, there's still sort of this competitiveness that they can look forward to once the league wraps up. If you're a super competitive player and you're in love with a couple of particular decks, you can just play those decks for the whole league if you want. If you're really good with them, you'll do fine. The notion of there being multiple ways to get to this top cut that comes at the end of the league, I think is really important for the, for the structure of it. Because leagues run for a while, as opposed to a tournament where, you know, you show up, you jam a bunch of games on the day, and then everybody goes home. A league, you know, sticks around for weeks or even months. You want everyone involved to feel like they have reasons to play. Because we've had leagues in the past where we, we were using, you know, ELO ratings, or we were only doing Swiss pairings. And it kind of becomes clear with several weeks left to go in the league, who's going to win. And that's always kind of unsatisfying. So we've sort of learned from those errors over the years and implemented all these new mechanics. You know, it sounds like a lot. We've said, you know, we have mechanics for this and mechanics for that. It's all written down, which ties into another thing that you really need to have in a league, which is clear rules. So most players are not going to read all the rules. They're just going to read the things that they have to report. So it's like, okay, I can get points for these things. And when I play a game, I need to fill out this Google form. Uh, and they just do that. And there's like two or three more pages of rules that they don't read. But those rules cover all of the questions that come up, like what happens if my opponent's basement flooded and they can't, we can't play our games this week? Or what happens if we got a rule wrong in one of our games or stuff like that? All those edge cases as they come up and you address them as a TO or lead runner or whatever, put them in the rules and then you've got something to refer to later. And no, most of the time, no one needs to look at that stuff, but write it down. Don't just like address it ad hoc. And then the next time it comes up, you're like, what did I do last time? How can I make sure that I'm being fair? And the other part is don't overstay your welcome. How long to run the league can be a little tricky. We max out at about seven weeks right now, which I think is just about right. Maybe we could go slightly shorter. I wouldn't want to get down to like four weeks. You're not playing very many games and there starts to get to be too much variance with all of the different mechanics that are at play. I believe that some of the things that you're talking about are key to a good league, but in some cases, if you're doing it just to all in your head or just all on paper, might be a little bit difficult to track. And to that end, being someone that's been part of your league, I want to give a shout out to a little tool that you created and kind of run through what that does and where people can check that out if they so choose. Professionally, in my professional life, I'm an engineer. I work in data science and I feel like whenever I'm about to do something twice, I should write some code that does it for me. As one does. I, Honestly, that's an extremely good rule, just generally speaking. 
Yeah, typically. I mean, if the if the overhead of writing the code isn't, you know, 10,000 times the cost of doing the thing the second time, but it's generally a pretty good philosophy I've found. So when I took over running the league, I was like, okay, I'm not going to track all of this stuff in a spreadsheet, different mechanics where I have to add everything up by hand. I'm going to take the opportunity to do this at least in as automated a way as I can. So the sign up form for the league where you, you know, you register and you put in what username you want and so on, that automatically populates league reporting form. So once you've signed up, your name goes into the list of valid names for reporting. Reporting form results go to a Google Doc, which is just a spreadsheet. That table gets ingested into a Shiny app that I wrote in R, which is a statistical computing language, and displayed on a web front end after. So we Cobra pairing. So I use Cobra to do the Swiss side of things because Cobra makes it very easy to add players, drop players, manually adjust pairings. And that's the second rule of programming is if somebody else has done a good job with something, don't reinvent the wheel. Cobra is fantastic. Shout outs to Jono for that. I just integrate with that because he made it super easy to do so. So we bring in the league results and the Cobra setup for the tournament. And that gets displayed on a, on a league tracking website that I set up that shows you the current standings. It shows you the current pairings for the week. You can choose whatever week you want to look at if you want to revisit past pairings. It shows you the bounty targets, has links to the sign-up form, the reporting form, and the rules document. So it's you know one place that you can go to see everything that you need to need to see about the league. And you know as people identify problems with uh, you know my points aren't quite right or reports where I messed up my report and and you know put the wrong data in it or whatever. You know, I can go in and fix bugs and update my code and redeploy the app and the updates are really fast and easy. So it's been a pretty nice way to do it. And now I've got this, this shiny app that ingests a, a JSON configuration that points to a Google Sheet and a Cobra tournament and lets you run a league. If you want to take a look at that, I would be happy to have collaborators. It's not my, my finest coding work, I will say. You know, when I get paid to do it, my code is unit tested, worked at work, you know, I work in branches, I have code reviews and pull requests and all that fun stuff. This is just some stuff that I've kind of hacked together and it works pretty well, but uh, it's not exactly battle tested, let's put it that way. So I'd be happy to have other eyes on it and collaborators. And if anyone else wants to use it, I can, I can walk somebody through, you know, the setup anytime, happy to do that. If you go to my GitHub profile, github.com slash door is a jar, check it out. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes just to make it super easy to find for anyone who's interested. Well, Ajar, thank you for that slice of wisdom on running leagues. Community fostering really seems like it's a labor of loaf. With that, I think, honestly, Bready or not, it's time for the next segment. Uh, three fucking bread puns. <laughs> you wrote them, Josh. Anyway, moving on. Baking up think loaves is the next segment, as you might have gotten from that very subtle number of bread puns that we had in that transition. Baking up think loaves this week is going to focus on the standard ban list. I'd actually like to start at a very high level here. So Ajar, you are heavily involved in the SBL. What is the SBL and what is your relationship to it? Sure. So the SBL is the standard ban list, which is a list of cards that you are not allowed to include in your deck if you want to play the standard format. The team that determines what goes on that list is called the standard balance team, which is a name we somewhat foolishly chose for ourselves when the name of the list was changed from NAPD most wanted list to standard ban list. So formerly we were the MW well committee We've kind of found that 
having the word balance in the name carries some connotations that maybe are a little bit misleading with respect to what we actually do. So it's good to have this opportunity to kind of clear the air a little bit. What sort of misconceptions does it create and what is the actual truth of things? There are a couple of different ways to look at curating a format in a card game. One view is that you should only fix egregious interactions that were maybe not intended or were overtuned relative to expectation in the design and development process. And so you ban those things and you leave everything else alone, aka in balance. And so I think that balance sort of implies you only ban things that are quote unquote unbalanced. But of course, that immediately begs the question, well, what is unbalanced? And there are many different answers to that question. So I do think it's quite a bit thornier than proponents of that view tend to claim. But the alternative to that is to accept that you're curating a metagame. And so everybody has opinions on what they think make any given meta good. There are widely beloved metas that are beloved for totally different reasons, right? So there were many people who adored the Anarch NBN metas of what, 2016, 2017. And there were other people who really thought those metas were a big problem. There were people who adored the four deck meta of prepaid Kate, Andy, Fastro, RP, thought that meta was fantastic. There were other people who were like, this sucks. I see the same decks over and over. So we try to align on what we think makes a good metagame. And we've done that by devising a list of goals or objectives. Those objectives have been made public once really early in the days of Nisei. And while we've talked about them a little bit, I think in some ban list updates, we've never actually written another article that says, hey, here are the objectives. And you know, here's a link you can point to when people ask, like, what are you actually doing on the standard balance team? So if you'd like, I can go through those. I think it would be very helpful, yeah. Sure. So the basic idea is we have four objectives in order that we use kind of as our guidepost when we look at the standard metagame and think about whether bans or unbans would improve it. And the first one is reducing negative player experiences or NPE. So that is the highest priority objective by far. And the short version of what that means is we expect significant interaction from both players' decks. So for example, earlier in the episode, I was talking about a punitive Reality Plus deck that I play in startup and about personal evolution or potential unleashed Jinteki decks that essentially do nothing and wait for the runner to kill themselves. Those are the kinds of decks that we go after under the auspices of reducing NPE. It's not limited to that. There are others. There are decks on the runner side. So for example, the old Diaper Kate combo decks, CI7 combo decks would fall into this category as well. Like I said, we expect significant interaction from both players' decks. That's the first it, objective. I think that that's very interesting to hear because negative player experience, definitely different players experience things differently. There can be Absolutely. experiences that different players find positive or negative that other players find negative or positive, respectively. Mm -hmm. and, there are definitely some decks that you just mentioned that are beloved. You know, oh, yeah. people loved CI7. There were entire threads. Yeah. There entire threads on just learning how to figure out corner cases of CI7. And Diaper was there were definitely huge proponents of Diaper who found it an incredibly fun way to play Netrunner. I was one of them and I did that. Yeah. And the issue isn't that it is a generically negative experience. It's that there isn't that significant interaction. There are people right. who are going to go into that game, especially, I would say, maybe people who are newer to the game or newer to that specific deck playing with or against it. 
where the game doesn't feel like a game of Netrunner. It isn't necessarily just, is this deck fun in a vacuum? It's, is it a fun Netrunner experience that matches what you expect when you sit down to play Netrunner? Yeah, exactly. And so importantly, right, we are the standard balance team and we're curating the standard ban list. These objectives and these opinions on what makes a meta good or better or worse in relative terms are very specific to the standard format, right? Which is a format of a certain size and of a certain power level. Historically, there have been periods of time where the power level in standard was, I think, well above what is currently being aimed for. And I think June talked about that some when she was on. So, you know, as I talk about these objectives and what we're trying to do, it's not like we hate CI7. It's not like we even necessarily hate potatoes. There is at least one potato stand on the balance team. But, you know, we're not trying to make a meta that favors our pet decks. We're trying to make a meta that we hope as many players as possible will be able to enjoy. So our first goal is reduce, mitigate NPE, such that both players are able to at least participate in a game that vaguely resembles Netrunner. The second objective is actually does have balance in it because it's the side balance between the runner and the corp, which side is up on the other. And in that context, we definitely subscribe to the longstanding view that the game is generally in a slightly better place when at average player skill with unknown deck lists, the corp is a slight favorite. Not by very much. And obviously we can't dial that in, you know, 55%, 56%. That's not what we're talking about. It's more about what the game feels like as far as how hard it feels like you have to work to earn your wins as a runner. And some people really like that to be hard. They like the corp to be at a, you know, a 60% type of baseline. And so it really feels when you get that seventh point that you really had to outplay the corp to make that happen. We like that to be dialed back a little bit. I would say that if we were going to pick a percentage, it would probably be about 55. Obviously, it's not really possible to set things up that way. But we think that if Corp is slightly up on average, at the average skill level, that that hopefully will translate to in-top cuts where deck lists are open and player skill is a little bit higher, things being roughly even, ends up overall being roughly what we think makes the meta the best. And again, I mean, this is all subjective. This is all sort of our opinion. Different people will have different perspectives on it, but I want to make sure that people understand where we're coming from and what we're trying to do. That makes a lot of sense to me. At various points in the game's history, you can definitely pinpoint times it was extremely a corp meta or extremely a runner meta, and that does not feel good. To a certain extent, it feels like, why do I show up to play if I have to win 100% of my games on the good side, and I am scraping to get a single win on the other side? Yeah, we agree with that. And the other nice thing that getting the side balance dialed in nicely to the extent that that's possible can do is open things up a little bit for experiments like the single-sided Swiss tournaments that are going on right now, where, you know, if you don't feel penalized for playing one side once more than the other, then it enables tournaments like that to work, really. And in the double-sided Swiss world, just the truth of players playing competitively and playing to make top cuts, two-for-ones are just a fact of that. Two-for-ones right. are going to happen. All that side imbalance does is increase the variance on that. It makes you feel worse for losing the coin flip. Yeah, and even in the top cut itself, it is entirely possible to play one of your decks more than the other. So there are a lot of reasons to want to try to get the side balance approximately right. So those are the first two, reducing NPE and corp runner side balance. So the third one, and again, these are in order of priority. This one, faction diversity is the third most important. 
if we're comfortable with where things are, the first two objectives, we have some opportunity. Essentially, what we would like to see is we would like for every faction to have at least one viable deck. That's the dream. That's quite hard to achieve. And that's one of the reasons why it's the third priority objective below the other two. But that's the ideal in a perfect world. I don't know that there's much need to elaborate any more on that. I think it's pretty clear both why that's good in terms of enabling a variety of play styles and why it's desirable in terms of giving people who love one particular faction a sense that they can play their pet deck and still have a shot, even if it's not necessarily a tier one tournament deck. It's at least a viable choice. I do think one thing that might be worth elaborating is I think this is a very clear illustration of why these are in a particular order. Because if you think of a meta where there is one viable deck in every single corp faction, and then those viable decks are Potatoes, Brain Rewire, Combo, Boom Sync, and uh, I don't know, Titan. I don't know if that sounds like a meta I want to play in. That would be a terrible meta. I also think that there's something to the fact that a meta can be good and also only have one or two viable decks on each side. We lived through a meta like that, and it was quite good. That was the 2016, where it was essentially your wizard or you're not, and your one flavor of NBN, your CTM or you are sync. And I would say that that was quite a good meta because the decks were very evenly matched up. They leveraged player skill quite well, but it was very monocolored that year. Obviously, I think that that's not ideal, which is why I'm glad that this is on the priorities list. But I also don't think that it is something to shy away from if the meta is real good, which I think that that one was. We definitely have and will continue to make choices from time to time that negatively affect that third objective relative to the others because we see something higher priority. Like you said, that's why they're in order. So, you know, if the only viable deck in a particular faction is a combo deck that we think is a big problem, we won't shy away from banning it, even if that means the faction has to wander in the wilderness for a little while. And you're basically saying with this lower priority that you don't mind having, in some metas, maybe half the factions wander in the wilderness. I don't know that we would want to get quite that far in that direction if we could avoid it, but if it's better than the alternative, and again, Mm -hmm. we can consider the alternatives on the basis of the objectives in order because they're ranked, then yes. So it it all comes down to what the trade-offs are and what those look like. And we try as best we can to establish those you know, by consulting with playtesters and playing test games and seeing what things look like, trying out different possibilities for the ban list and so on. But we'll get into that a little bit later. We still haven't talked about the fourth objective. Agreed. We should get into that. So the fourth one, in a perfect world where all other things are equal, we're good on those first three fronts, is ID diversity within faction. Objective four is we would like for each faction to have more than one viable deck, preferably out of more than one ID. Obviously, that is even harder to achieve than the third one, but that's the dream. So we feel like if we prioritize these things in order and we try to make changes that move the meta in a favorable direction as indicated by the relative priorities of those objectives, that over time we will improve the meta. That's the basic idea of what we're trying to do with the standard ban list. Entirely too reasonable. Cut the feed. The good list of priorities, I would say, 
in the ideal world where all four of them are met, that sounds like a really fucking cool metagame. I think it's hard right. to get there, but the fact that the end goal is hard to get to doesn't mean that you shouldn't have it there to aim at. I mean, it's almost certainly impossible, but if you'll allow me a technical analogy, it's like a constrained optimization problem mm -hmm. in the sense that you can work out what the optimal solution is perfectly. No solution that you ever deploy in a live environment will ever match that. So for example, if you're trying to do a forecast of some type and you want to benchmark what can be done with perfect knowledge, you can do that and you can determine exactly what the optimal decision is to make at any given time if you have all of the information about the future. You'll never get there, but that doesn't mean it's not useful to know. Mm -hmm. I like that idea, playing Oracle Netrunner, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> if only we could. The yeah. problem is we're trying to do it by guessing at what the ideal is and then trying to kind of stumble vaguely in the direction that we think will get us closer to it. Mm -hmm. And we definitely won't always be perfect. But one advantage that we have over the Fantasy Flight days is nobody else has to vet our ban list updates. We've just seen this. We released a 2104 ban list update earlier this year that banned Titan and, uh, is that it? That may have been it. I believe Titan, yeah. Because as we said in the update, Titan was a problem in system update and system gateway playtesting, which actually I should mention this is a little bit of a tangent, but that is one thing that we do. We aren't all playtesting the new sets ourselves because the standard Stuff takes a lot of time, but we are aware of what's in those sets and we're paying attention to what design and development and playtesters are telling us are problems with existing cards. And we're perfectly willing to preemptively ban cards in standard that are going to be a problem with cards that are coming out. We will gladly ban old cards in favor of new stuff, not a problem. So after 2104, we very quickly saw in the live meta that purple decks were running away with everything. And we a little bit, yeah. had known that they would be good, but it wasn't clear how good until we saw a few tournaments in the live meta. And it was very obvious that these are like eight turn decks that are very consistent and very hard to interact with, which for us touches that MPE, that first objective. You do need, you know, some number of turns as a runner to be able to interact with the corp. You usually have to install at least one or two cards, not necessarily breakers. And so we released a 2105 update and banned violet level clearance. And we had no problem doing that. Yeah. And honestly, I, for one, appreciate that willingness to do important bans as they pop up. Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the pain points that we experienced under FFG was the fact that it seemed like there was such a hesitance to do bans and do balancing in the first place. And it just came so slow and it came so infrequently. So there would be, you know, Sipper would run away with the meta for an entire season. And then finally they would step in and ban the card. Yeah, I think there were a lot of factors that played into that. And most of them are obviated by being a community run game mm -hmm. and being able to be flexible. It does mean we might make a few more mistakes because we're doing more stuff, but we're also very willing to quickly reverse those. So just one example of that was the flip-flop on banning SIU versus Zealous Judge. Mm -hmm. I personally was a tester at that time, and I was on the wrong side of that argument and advocated very strongly for what turned out to be the wrong ban. Mm. And uh, when it became clear that it had been the wrong ban, I changed my view and advocated for the other ban and ended up on the committee.
oh wait we're not a committee anymore we're a team <laughs> yeah that's right i have to say that i really appreciate the speed of the bands and i think a lot of the emergency band updates have been quite good because they've addressed things quickly that the community knew were a problem and it was just like boom we got it it's done vlc in particular being banned from the purple decks was mm-hmm. a fantastic chef's kiss of a call because you had to tailor your whole ass runner deck to just deal with purple decks and even then it felt like you had to draw your cards in the right order mm-hmm. to even have a chance to fight against what they were doing I was purely teched out against purple decks and I still felt like if I didn't snipe an agenda or two in the first three turns before things mm-hmm. were iced up, I was dead. Yeah, for sure. And it still feels like you have to have a plan against those decks, but it feels like now your whole ass deck doesn't have to be committed to just fighting Asa or fighting PD in some ways. I think PD is still very, very good. And I think Ace is still very, very good, but you know. It's hard to dial in that balance, as you said. Yeah, and that also ties into implications of those four objectives and trying to curate the meta by using those as our guideposts that are maybe not obvious Mm -hmm. from just reading them or hearing about them in order. And one of those, which you've just touched on, is we don't target the top decks just because of the top decks. We're not here to just knock down the top deck over and over and over. We're specifically here to look at those four objectives. What changes can we make that will improve the meta looking to those as our guidepost? So a deck like ASAR PD being good is not a problem if that deck is playing Netrunner and the meta is otherwise healthy. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, and VLC was definitely a good way to get those decks a little back in that direction because it turns out if you ban arguably the best econ card in the entire game that they can play on turn one with basically no consequences. It turns out that it gives you extra turns as the runner. It gives you extra wiggle room. It's funny how that works out. Yeah. VLC in particular has had such an interesting journey through legality. Yes, very much so. And I think that sort of illustrates what I've talked about in terms of our willingness to ban and unban stuff. I mean, we don't want cards to be like a yo-yo that come on with one update, go off with the next and are on and off and on and off. But if the environment allows for it, we're not opposed to stuff coming on or going off. I think we would, just as a general rule, this isn't anything we have codified anywhere, but I think typically we would want a card to stay on or off for, say, at least two ban lists before we think too much about reversing it, unless it was like an obvious mistake, sort of as was the case with SIU and Zealous Judge Swap. I'd actually like to get into a little bit of the mechanics here. What actually goes into creating a ban list? How do you get from these principles to actually saying this is a list of cards? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've talked a lot about, you know, our objectives and our goals and so on, but not about what actually goes into the who decides. I've said that the team decides, uh, but I haven't said how the team decides. So I'll go over the process a little bit here quickly. We are constantly iterating on the process itself, and we're probably going to change things a bit after the next ban list comes out, but I'll give you the overview of how we have done slash are doing the current update. So up front, I mean, we're always, we're paying attention to standard. We're trying to play standard. We're reading Timhack Slack, Netrunner Dorks, folks on GLC, the Netrunner subreddit, 
you name it, right? If there's a Netrunner community out there, at least one of us probably has eyes on it. We're paying attention to the meta and always thinking about what people are saying and what we're seeing as potential problems. And we, again, view those takes always through the lens of the four objectives. We have our own Slack channels on the Nisei Slack where we're talking about this stuff and thinking about it. We'll get a sense of where the team is as far as the meta, what we perceive the problems to be, and so forth. And from that, we kind of maintain essentially a watch list of either cards or decks that we think are potentially a problem. And also stuff that could potentially come off the ban list as well. Another running thread that we talk about. We take that to playtesters when it's time to actually start preparing a new ban list update. And we first ask them for ideas. So in the same way that we're paying attention to what the community is talking about, we specifically ask our playtesters for their thoughts on where's the meta? What do you think about maybe this list of four or five cards as potential testing targets to be banned or unbanned with respect to certain decks in the meta? So we get some takes. There are a lot of takes. Playtesters, one thing that playtesters are always very eager to do is give hot takes in ample supply. We take all of that. Given the playtesters, I know I'm not shocked to hear that. Yeah, I mean, that's Netrunner players, right? Every Netrunner player has opinions, often strong opinions. And one thing that I've noticed on the committee is it's extremely common for those opinions to be contradictory from one meta to the next. Multiple times I've run into situations where you know, I had my own opinion on something that may be aligned with one particular meta or group of playtesters that I with often. And there will be someone on the team or a playtester from a different meta who has ex like a diametrically opposed take. And so I have to go back and kind of question some of my assumptions about Netrunner and how it works and what things make it good and so on. And that sort of ties back to what I was talking about before about how Netrunner can actually be stretched. Like the core of the game can be stretched a really long way and still work. And so that sort of lends itself to a broad range of perspectives on what should be in any given format, and that includes standard. So we end up with a lot of takes, both from ourselves and from our testers, to kind of synthesize and digest. We chew through that and come up with an initial testing list. That list is always far from final. It's basically a short list of cards that either come on or come off, each with a couple of what we call testing targets. So freeing this card, we're banning that card, we're interested in exploring these matchups to try out these decks in this new and potential environment and let us know what you think about the matchups. How did, how did the decks feel? How hard did you have to work as a runner? Like, did it feel like a chore to you get anywhere or, you know, because we're not playing a hundred games here. We don't have the testers or the time to play gajillions of games in every matchup and really dial in. We're not like refining a tournament meta here, right? We're relying heavily on our understanding and our testers' understandings of the game while acknowledging that those understandings differ often in very substantive ways. And so we try to get as many perspectives as we can from as many people as possible, particularly perspectives that are based on playing testing games. Because it's easy to have takes and post them on the playtest discord. We all do that. I do that. The balance team does that. And a lot of the testers do it too. And it's totally fine and useful. But I've certainly found that even just playing a couple games in a matchup that we're targeting can kind of open my mind up a little bit about like the nuances of what's changing and some of the knock-on effects that I may not have been considering, things like that. So once we've got a bunch of feedback, or at least as much as we're going to get, like often when we release one of these lists, there'll be an initial flurry of testing games and then it'll kind of slow down. That's sort of how these things tend to go. 
will take that feedback, digest it again internally as the media try to synthesize it, and then come up with an updated list. And then we'll repeat that same cycle. So we go through this a few times. Last year for 2006, we went through it for six months, which is not really what we want to be doing. But ideally, we would do two to three rounds of that before arriving at a final list. And, and both the updates and the final list are ultimately arrived at by consensus among the team members, which basically means that either we mostly or entirely agree, which is rarely the case, or we vote. Those are the, the two primary mechanisms that ultimately arrive at, at any given decision. And it's not always that easy because you might be voting on bringing one card or banning one card. And you might say, I would ban this one, but only if this other card gets unbanned, for example. And it's not always that easy to navigate all of those sort of conditional questions, but we do the best we can to come up with something that'll work and hopefully improve the meta, keeping in mind the original four objectives. I have a question, and this is just, it's human nature sometimes I think that these situations will work out this way, but is there like politics and haggling on votes and stuff like that sometimes? Not like that. The bottom line is, and this is also true for testers, Everyone is assumed to be coming from a place of good faith, right? We're all volunteers. We are all trying to improve the game as we understand it. And we all get that everyone's bringing their own perspective to the table. And that's one thing that Mike or Manverupt, who is in charge of the committee, has done a really good job of, is recruiting members who come from different metas different backgrounds as far as level of competitive play or willingness to explore alternative deck building strategies to make sure that the voices on the committee are diverse from that perspective. I think this is emblematic of one of the things that I find so fascinating about Netrunner and so cool about Netrunner is the scale that we work at. If I think, again, making a comparison to a different larger game, Magic the Gathering, in their banlist announcements, oftentimes they say, you know, we are banning this card because this particular deck is winning X percent of games on Magic Arena, and that is too many percentage of games. Or we noticed that, you know, in these particular matchups, which define the metagame at the highest levels, this deck is basically unbeatable. Or the one person playing Quark Clan Ironworks never loses, or something along those lines. They have that ability, they have the scale where basically, to be clear, I'm not saying that they had an easy job, but they have a lot more data at their fingertips. They have a larger scale that they can actually try to shave percentages. They can actually say, hitting this card will hit this and knock it down from like a 55% to a 53%. In Netrunner, we have to use more of that intuition. We have to really guide the data gathering process is what I'm hearing here really target where you're getting the feedback instead of just looking at, you know, the total number of games across all of Magic Arena in a week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we could get and sometimes do get snapshots of anonymized Jinteki.net data, but the frequency of games is obviously a tiny, tiny fraction of what you've got if you're a Magic the Gathering or a Hearthstone. And especially in the context of a game like Hearthstone, they can change the numbers on their cards and they can change the text of their cards. And we can't do that, right? We can only either ban them or unban them. I didn't even think of that aspect. Yeah, they can do the balancing in real time. Whereas if you have a physical printed card, think of how controversial it was for Wireless Net Pavilion to become unique or right. Museum of History to become unique. Yep, exactly. Because you have physical printed cards that no longer match the game text. That's 
crazy. <laughs> or That's the original right. MWL where we were adding and subtracting influence. Well, not subtracting, right? But adding. Yep, exactly. Very cool. One last question on the topic of the standard ban list. I imagine some people have probably listened to this discussion of the standard ban list and how it comes about and thought that sounds like a cool process. That sounds like an important part of the game that impacts me on a day-to-day basis if I'm going to a tournament and I'd like to get involved. What's the best way for people to get involved with this process? If you go to nisei.net, there is a recruiting or a join us or something like that link. I think it's at the bottom of the front page. Applications are always open. We're always happy to recruit more playtesters. We have a great playtest coordinator in labs over across the pond on the EU side of things. In addition to that, we just finished a round of recruitment for the balance team itself. We haven't seen the applications yet, so sit tight if you've put one in and are are waiting to hear back from us, but we should be getting those pretty soon. There will be more opportunities in the future too, because we're all volunteers. The job is a lot of work and sooner or later, all of us are going to burn out and want to be replaced by new enthusiastic people with different hot takes than ours who will uh, steer the meta in interesting ways, but hopefully still guided by those same core four objectives that we try to use as our guideposts. Very nice. So that gives us a good insight into how the standard ban list gets made, what it is, why it is, and how to get involved with it. I think that's a good foundation on that topic. I'd like to switch gears at this point. I think it's time for us to talk instead of about the cards that you can or cannot include in a Netrunner deck, it's time for us to talk about an actual Netrunner deck. Josh, do you want to switch us over to Deck and Bamboozled? Oh, yeah, indeed. I would like to start us off with Deck and Bamboozled. Hell yeah. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to reach back into the past, talk about a deck that is near and dear to my heart, and I believe... Ajar's heart as well. However, I'm not sure about uh, your position on this pants. It's 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 shaper. I have heard from sources that it plays very unshaper like. I was not around during the heyday of this deck, so I remain skeptical. But I'll allow you to continue. Okay, no cutting of the feet. So this is prepaid Kate. Ajar, do you want to go ahead and describe the theory of the deck and how this works and and all that happy fun stuff? Sure. Prepaid Kate is, as it sounds like, a deck that hinges on the card Prepaid Voice Pad, which just got a reprint in System Update. Two-cost hardware that reduces the cost of an event by one credit. And Prepaid Kate played three of those, Kate being a Shaper ID who got a one-credit discount on the first programmer hardware installed each turn. So you can install prepaid voice pad for one credit and immediately get paid back by playing, for example, a sure gamble. So the deck played a pile of events, three prepaid voice pads, and at least one copy of Levy AR lab access to reshuffle all those events back into your stack and do the whole thing again. One other core event to the deck that you probably don't see around too much nowadays but was recently in standard as part of salvaged memories is lucky find, which is a three cost two influence event that pays you nine credits, which sounds like a pretty terrible deal for two influence. But when you can install a prepaid voice pad for one credit, that deck was a deck that could go from zero credits to an 18 credit stim hack run in two clicks. 
And that at the time was pretty terrifying for a lot of corps. That's pretty fast. 18 credits is a lot of credits. That's two stim hacks. Yeah. Lucky find in some ways was uh, stim hacks three to six. The correct number of stim hacks there, I know three. Absolutely. The more stim hacks, the better. So you have three stim hacks, you have levy to get the stim hacks back and play another three stim hacks. I'm, I'm more on board than I expected to be at the start of a segment. Do we want to run down a basic list? I know that there are several and this evolved over time. Actually, I'd like to start, if it's fine, I'd like to start just since I lack a lot of context on this deck. What were the origins here? Did this start with a type of Kate deck that morphed into prepaid or was this a new idea that came out of nowhere? A little bit of both. Way back in the before times of 2014, I was a young netrunner posting on the stimhack.com forums about my very earliest tournament experiences. I ran into another poster there by the name of Lysander, who ended up leaving the game. I don't actually know what happened, but we collaborated together on a number of different decks on both sides. One of them was what we called a Blitzkate deck, an aggro shaper deck. The first thread on this topic literally had that name. Who says only criminals are aggressive Kate Blitz? We were we were working on various incarnations of that. How what what tools do you use to make Shaper aggressive? I was running account siphon, two account siphons in Kate. The idea being that because you're Shaper and you have access to self-modifying code, a corp can't actually stop you from siphoning them. And then you use that fuel to maintain the ability to crack their remote. In parallel to what Lysander and I were doing talking about Kate builds in public and also in, in PMs going back and forth. There was another group iterating on Kate decks, spearheaded by a netrunner we all know and love, I think, Spags. Love is a bit of a strong word, but uh, there's certainly an intense like. I'm certainly a friend of the cast. Also a friend of mine. So I, I'm just kidding. I love Spags. So he and, and a few other folks on the Wisconsin side of the border were working on Kate builds. And I don't know which of them, I don't know for sure which of them initially had the idea to put three prepaid voice pads in a Kate deck. I believe from memory that it was Chill84. I think Spags has said that, but I'm not 100% sure. So if it was Spags or if it was Andrews or somebody else, I apologize. And so in our Kate Blitz thread, Spags dropped this post in April of 2014 with the first prepaid Kate deck that was initially somewhat based on Ottman Kate builds that had been around the year before. Notably, in this initial list, a topic that would later become highly controversial, three copies of Professional Contacts. That post sparked quite a discussion and that led to its own thread that went on to, I think this might be the single longest thread in the history of the Stimhack forums, currently standing at 2,562 posts over three years, redefining shaper control decks. I would gladly make a drill joke here, but I doubt there are any discussions of whether or not Kate's a libertarian. Huh. Lysander's initial take on this, kept the prepaid voice pads and the levy and the lucky finds, dropped the professional contacts, but included two copies of Knight as the core breaker rather than relying entirely on Otman. Three Otman, two Knight, 
one deus ex, one pipeline. Nightman. But importantly, also one parasite is really one of the core breakers from that time, uh, including throughout the entire history of prepaid Kate. It very quickly became a mainstay breaker for the deck to deal with ice that you just didn't want to run into over and over again. Part of the one of the core efficiencies of the deck was if I'm not going to want to hit this multiple times, I'm going to kill it, and then I'm going to use my efficient breakers on what's left. Yeah, and that parasite with three clone ships and a levy is coming back and back and back. In those days, no real way to kill the Parasite either. There was no Arc Lockdown. There was no Scorpios. That Parasite was going to bounce back as many times as you needed it. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And there was no CVS. So oh, if you wanted wow. your ice to not die, you had to waste your turn. That's crazy. <laughs> Did not even think of that. Or play yeah, could... uh, Cyberdex Trial. Yeah, of which was terrible. <laughs> oh, man. But... Hold on. Hold on. Quick aside here. On the topic of potatoes, I've thought of the most potatoes play. Playing three Cyberdex Trial in the same turn. <laughs> if you think but that's why? more potatoes than just clicking for three credits, I guess it is more potatoes because you actually didn't do anything. And you also didn't just use the basic action card to purge. I It feels more mm -hmm. potatoes in that way to me. Is there a triple he heaven action? Depends if you're uh, a runner uh, or not. And then you preemptive um, all three Trials back into your deck. Oh, chef kiss. This is or, terrible. Alternatively, you have three clone suffrage movement that only oh, no. are there to recur the cyberdex trials. This is terrible. I don't like this. Can we keep talking about Kate? So one of the things that Jar hit on here is that you had to waste turns to save some of your ice. So with the bigger ice with prepaid, if you knew you wanted to run somewhere in the next couple of turns, but not necessarily the turn that you install the Parasite, one of the things better players, better pilots of this deck would do is they'd slow roll Parasite. Install it. If you purge, you give me a turn in which I can do other things. And if you don't, eventually I'm going to run there and that ice is going to be dead. One thing that we have not directly said, but have alluded to quite a bit, is that you were also running one or two copies of Data Sucker in that deck. So the pressure that you were able to apply by stashing a Parasite on a toll booth sitting on a remote, just making the occasional run, check HQ, and make sure that they weren't holding, build up those data sucker counters, knowing that if they want to keep the toll booth alive, at some point, they're going to have to spend a turn on purging. And that is only a temporary solution, not a permanent solution. The core breaker suite relied a fair bit on single shot trash to use breakers like Deus Ex and Sharpshooter. With those and clone chips and so on, this is really where the term shaper bullshit came from. And it was one of the most fun puzzles in the game at that time, especially later on once Replicating Perfection became a thing, Caprice Nisei got printed, food, food Coats became a deck. Thinking about how to crack a remote with the tools you had at your disposal, be, be they in your grip, on the board, in the bin, or heaven forbid, do you have to levy and, and try to high roll, was always for me, one of the most interesting parts of playing that deck. Not exactly the same, but I at least can relate here from the years of playing Max, where you have the Levy mm -hmm. and you have the clone chips and you have the Davids. And sometimes you have another single use program here or there. 
it can be very fun to figure out what the correct line is when you have that many options. So I, I can relate there. There's something very fun about trying to solve the puzzle of how do I get into the server on top of solving the puzzle of do I need to get into the server. Parasite and Data Sucker are just such, obviously a strong combo, but a good combo to play with. It feels good to be rewarded for making runs in a way that rewards you by letting you make more runs. That's just such a fun core gameplay loop. Agreed. There are a couple of interesting, other interesting choices here in that original list that Spags put out. Speaking of aggression and applying pressure to the corp, there's a copy of Escher in this deck, which for a long time for me was a card like 45, 46 that was in and out of my prepaid Kate builds. That actually ties to something that's that's going on not quite as much in standard today but definitely in startup is Tau. That notion of moving ice around that has been part of Shaper's part of the color pie for quite a long time. It's quite nice to see that sort of echoed where you don't have to try to find a deck slot for a copy of Escher in a, in a deck like Prepaid Cake that is absolutely stuffed to the gills. Another interesting pick in this list is two copies of Public Sympathy. Oh my God, I did not see that. What, what, increases- what does it do here? It increases your maximum hand size, and I think it's so that you don't, uh, to make it harder to die to Scorched Earth. There are three copies of Quality Time. We probably didn't mention the fact that the one of the reasons that the deck is so able to levy is that you play three diesel, three Quality Time, optionally, up to three professional contacts. Well, zero or three professional contacts. I think history has shown that playing professional contacts was uh, probably a good choice. Just the ability to burn through your deck with uh, with Quality Times that cost you you know, two, one, or even zero credits does mean you're you're throwing stuff away a lot. But often, because you have three clone ships, you're throwing away stuff that you want to have in your bin. So it's not that much of a downside. Certainly not so much of a downside that public sympathy is really needed. So that was very quickly cut. I guess some arguments that have been made by Simon Moon, for instance, argues pretty vehemently on his podcast that Plascrete was too played in this era. There was too much Plascrete around. You could probably just beat some of these Wayland Tag and Bag Scorched Earth decks just by playing better and having more money and being more judicious with runs. In a deck like this, where you have all of these quality times and all of these diesels, it kind of makes sense to be able to be on one and just you can find it when you need it because you have all of this draw. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually decks did go down to one, I believe. But the whole reason, at least... I remember thinking this, the whole reason that you put in a Plascrete as opposed to like a public sympathy and the whole reason you put it in, even though you can get around Scorched with Judicious Play, is it's a card you literally put down for three credits and your your win rate against that tag and bag deck is literally 100%. There's nothing that they can do because their whole strategy is now just done. Which sort of illustrates the problem with Plascrete Carapace. Absolutely. It's it's a very, very, very good silver bullet against the deck it was designed to destroy because it absolutely wrecks it. I'm curious, kind of, we've heard a little bit about the origins of prepaid Kate. We've run through a lot of the core cards that were in prepaid Kate decks. How did this deck end, I guess? What, what was the end game of prepaid Kate? Obviously, Kate rotated. But other than that, did prepaid Kate remain a major deck up until Kate rotated? I don't remember exactly how that all shook out, to be totally honest with you. I mean, part of it was that Haley became available. They're they're doing them differently because Haley has, has the ability to double up on resources, whereas Kate wants to focus on programs and hardware. 
I still think there was a lot of concern. Oh, actually, you know what killed prepaid Kate was the most wanted list. Absolutely, it did. To to delete prepaid Kate from the meta, and uh, and that happened. That's a victory for the deck in a sense, right? The deck was so powerful that they literally changed the rules of Netrunner to make you not able to put those 45 cards together. Disagree with the fundamental premise that the deck was too powerful. I think it was a very good deck, but I think it was honest and fair Netrunner. I have opinions that could go for days on why this shouldn't have been hit by the MWL in its first iteration. I will hold my tongue, though. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Players get attached to decks and... I think Damon's view that the the meta was underexplored because everybody was just playing Kate probably has some truth to it, had some truth to it. But I also think that it was a really fun deck. Why not let players play it? I think I I clung to prepaid for a fair while after that first most wanted list really hit it and made us start paying influence for Voicepad and Clone Chip and Parasite and Lady. Eventually, I just sort of got tired of playing the deck and moved on to playing Anarchs for a while. I went from prepaid Kate to uh, actually to Regmax, which has, like Shut you were this. saying earlier, yeah, exactly. What you were saying earlier, Pants, had a lot of the same fun play patterns to it where you're trying to figure out how to do what you want to do with the, the tools that you have at your disposal. But with the added benefit of getting to throw your cards in the trash, which in my opinion is an important part of good Netrunner gameplay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. I don't need these. Sometimes you say, oh, I don't need these. And sometimes you say, I, I don't need these. Jengus uh, provides, uh, as the case may be. Any last thoughts on prepaid? Otherwise, I'm going to move us into the next segment. Oh, I have a, a thought. Yes. Now that prepaid's back, and you get the same hardware discount from as, why have we not seen a prepaid as deck? Like, what's holding that back? In your Do you opinion. need a discount on Bravado? No, but I mean, wouldn't that just like make you even more money? I think the short answer is setup time. The game's pretty fast. You don't have the access to the same draw engines in Crim as you do in Shaper. You have to like set up um, masterwork queue loop, loop stuff or import diesel or um, the arcation or Anacam to really get the cards flowing. I mean, you're playing class act, which helps. It ends up being a little bit of a nombo with prepaid because it draws you in a burst. But with prepaid, you want to drip your events out. You want to play like, you know, one or two. So like you get your, your benefit and maybe if your hand's full, you play a second event too. But you don't want to be like playing three or four. I think the the picture is just, is just different. The other part is... Levy, right? There's no levy. You can't do it no, That's right. There's no levy. So you can't, you're not like making a pass through your deck to get the prepaid set up, doing a levy and okay, now the game starts. For one thing, today the game is probably over by then. For another, you don't have those same like heap tools in Crim that you have in Shaper. Like Shaper today can still do some Shaper bullshit type stuff between Simulchip and SMC and Test Run and um, and whatnot. Crim, if you want to do that kind of stuff, be able to like overdraw, throw stuff away, and use it, you're importing a lot, and then you become influence starved. So I, I think kind of think the the pieces aren't really there. And it's also not quite, it's not really that necessary. Okay. Okay. Why spend two or one of your as on a prepaid that does things a few turns from now or like over several turns in the future when you can pay two or one as as to install a boomerang 
that does a very big thing right now. Exactly. I want to say one other thing about prepaid Kate, which was in its heyday, I really thought that that meta was extremely good. Prepaid Kate, Andromeda, Fastro, NEH, Faster Biotics, and Food Coat slash Replicating Perfection. I thought that meta was, and, and a splash of noise here and there, right? I thought that meta was fantastic. Like the runner decks played super differently. The corp decks played very differently from one another. You had to be prepared for a range of strategies, even the occasional rogue whaling deck. And the games were super fun, super tense, and, and highly interactive because you had to be able to handle NEH, which can go super fast. So you've slotted the clot. There's this tense back and forth of clot baiting by the NEH player. But you've also got to be able to figure out how to crack remotes multiple times in a single turn against food coats and RP. You need to be able to do that as Kate, as a shaper with all these crazy tools at your disposal, or you need to be able to do it as Andromeda, where you, you know, you rig build and you build up those suckers. And that particular meta is actually a really good illustration of kind of what we've been talking about. I know that not every faction was viable, but there were five-ish, five or six decks that were all at the top of the meta, all from different factions and all played very differently. And none of them were NPE. That's right. This sounds shocking to current players, probably. That was the meta where Anarch wasn't quite that good. Noise here and there, but it was kind of a faction that was on the outs as far as being super great and super competitive. Order and Chaos really powered them up. There was a rogue Wayland deck. Timmy Wong became the people's champion by taking Blue Sun to third. Absolutely correct. Shout out to Timmy Wong. Amazing Netrunner player. Fantastic person. Always a pleasure to talk with. There's a reason he's the people's champion. Honestly, we've talked a lot about how cards get banned in the first place. We've talked a lot about how one particular deck got banned. I think it's time to move and focus a little farther down on how one specific card will or will not get banned on this very cast. Josh, would you like to move us to the next segment? Yes, it's time for our largest segment, our segment which includes the most discussion and the most intense debate, differing opinions here and breakdowns of meta-analysis and numbers and statistics and faction balance and sides and all that happy fun stuff. And for legal reasons, we do have to state that none of the decisions made during this segment are legally binding. But it's time for ban or nab. So would you like to take it away? Ban or nab? Rashida Jaheem. Ban. Ban. Well, that was easy. The next much shorter segment, the Banner Nav, always, we always have much less discussion, but it's it's still a good segment. We'd like to include it. As always, we are going to discuss the good card of the week that's still good and you should still play it. Ajar, I believe you have a choice for this as well. What is the good card of the week that's still good and you should still play it? Botulus. Well, I think it's clear why it's a good card, right? It is a non-icebreaker, so it doesn't care about strength, and it costs virus counters, which it gives to you for free over time instead of credits. It doesn't have a restriction like David used to of um, ice must be above a certain strength or below a certain strength or anything like that. It synergizes with various other cards in the card pool, and with one to two tokens, it breaks most of the highest impact ice that is widely played in standard right now. Obviously, it doesn't save you against Anansi or Fairchild 3, but if you have a good spidey sense of what ice are in the corpse deck and where they like to put those ice on the board, 
you can usually intuit a reasonably good place to put your botulus and make the corp have kind of a bad day. In this particular case, Spidey Sense, very appropriate. So it's a great card and you should play it. Um, I even enjoy splashing it out of faction. Although admittedly, I've been doing that in startup rather than in standard, but I've been having a ton of fun playing it in Tau and uh, moving the botulist ice around to the place of my desire. Simul chip, whether you're playing botulus in Shaper or in Anarch is fantastic with it. You can reset it for free. Agreed. Simul chip or no simul chip, botulus is just very good. I think if we break it down to basically what the card says, it says at least one subroutine just does not matter. It doesn't matter this turn, which can help you if you're just trying to land a single big impact diversion of funds or an embezzle or a big conduit run. It really helps with stuff like that. It helps you both early and late. And I think crucially, it helps you in future turns also. If we compare it to, I think, one of the most obvious comparison points, Boomerang, it only gives you one sub on the immediate install. It can be purged. You can get blown up by CVS. You have to actually use MU to install it which can be a big problem at certain points in the game. But there are some ways that it's much better than Boomerang. Boomerang, you pop it, and you have to then draw through your deck to find it again. Botulus just stays there. It's just there for a long time, and it says, the next time that you care about this ice, this number of subs don't matter. All you have to do is wait or have some other shenanigan to refresh the virus counters. I think it actually has stronger parallels to, I mean, obviously it has parallels to Boomerang, but I think it has stronger parallels in how it's used and how it functions to Parasite, to be honest with you. What it's doing is it is getting rid of one problem ice, just like Parasite would. And it's also forcing the corp to, as we talked about with Kate, make that decision of, does my ice do something? Do I save my ice? Or do I let the runner blow this up? And Botulus isn't doing what Parasite did where it removes it from the board, but it's doing the same sort of thing where it removes it from play. I think that Botulus is a very powerful card, is going to be a mainstay in in a lot of decks for a while, but I think it's super well-designed and I think it's super fun to play with and against. A wonderful example of an iconic card for a faction you can splash it out of faction. You're going to pay three influence, which is great. I think that's very fairly costed. It's a card that says, this is one of our core mechanics as mm -hmm. Anarch, that we can use viruses to, if you will, Anarch bullshit, right? It feels very in line with the ethos of Anarch. Give me the thing now. We'll worry right. about next turn, next turn. Putting yourself at risk. Give me the thing now, but I could get blown out if they've got the right thing. Yeah. Right. I fucking love this card. Yeah, it's firing on all cylinders as far as I'm concerned. Do we have anything more to say about Botulus, honestly? like, Because normally the way this segment pans out is it's either a real bad card that we all just shit on endlessly because we have <laughs> no shutoff valve for the amount of shit that we can heap on a card. Uh, see Gauntlet with the... There was a solid 12 minutes of us shitting on the gauntlet content. Look, it deserved it. It's a terrible card. It's either that or it's a spicy take, and we have plenty of things to argue about. But I I think we're all just preaching to the choir here. 
Well, we are at least actually good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I think getting back to why the segment is called what it's called, I think this card, it's not that Botulus is not played right now. Obviously, it's seeing play. Hive Mind Max is one of the top decks in the meta. But yeah. I think it might be underestimated outside of the context of that particular deck. It's easy mm -hmm. to look at Hive Mind Max mm -hmm. and say, oh, Botulus is good because it has Cookbook and it has the three Simul chips mm -hmm. and it has the emergency counters on Overmind. And really, mm -hmm. the answer is no. Botulus is just good and you probably should play it more places than you're thinking of playing it right now. I think that you could honestly make the case for putting it in like a like a freedom list not having hive mind but maybe having like cookbook in there because cookbook is just one credit to fire off and put in play and it juices up all the rest of the cards that you would like to play in freedom plus freedom has the ability to take those botulist counters that you're racking up and use them to just destroy cards botulist could be one of the key cards in that I think that's somewhat of an artifact, like the prepaid as discussion earlier of the pace of the meta right now. Mm -hmm. But I think that if uh, if Corpse gets slowed down a little bit, it would not surprise me at all to see more people starting to tinker with freedom. The fall because... off on freedom has really surprised me, honestly. But m maybe you're right. Maybe it is a question mm -hmm. of speed. I think it probably almost certainly is. I think that Botulus and Freedom is definitely a cool idea because it's one of those sort of win-win scenarios. Either you get to use the Botulus to do the thing that you want Botulus to do, which is break ice on a relevant server, or the corp is like, ha ha ha, that ice doesn't matter. I'm actually going to do things in a different server. And now it's just a battery with money on it. Right. Yeah. I think we've covered the good card of the week that's still good and you should still play it. Cool. I think we can go ahead and move on to the next segment. The next segment is the closing argument. Oh, sorry, Josh. Didn't you want to note somewhere in there that the suggestion was specific to the week? And Oh, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. As always, the suggestion for good a card of the week that's still good and you should still play it is specific to this specific week. So if you listen to this podcast eight days after it comes out, I don't know, maybe don't play Botulus. Let's move on to the closing argument. The closing argument, as always, is for our guests. Let's say that you are going to go to a store champ this weekend, but... Due to a freak mishap with uh, something, I don't know a way to make this plausible, some freak mishap with your login to Netrunner DB. How about that? You are not able to create any new deck lists. You are only allowed to use existing deck lists, either of your own or of other people's. What are you going to take to this storage end? On the runner side, I take Hive Mind Max, which we've just been talking about tangentially. I would just take Heinzel's list and run that straight up. That deck is fantastic, and it's a lot of fun to pilot from the runner side. For all the reasons that we've talked about between Shaper Bullshit and Anarch Bullshit and throwing your cards in the bin, all of the pieces that really make you think about what you're trying to do, where you want to go, how to get there over the course of like the next two, three turns. And it's also a really good deck. So that's the runner side sorted. On the corpse side, I would look at a few different decks, but ultimately I suspect that the one I would want to try out the most would be the big units redacted Asa, a hard-hitting news boom Asa deck that masquerades as, you know, the vanilla tempo rush Asa deck and then hard-hitting news is you and kills you. I think that even if you know HHN is in the deck, it's still good. I think that's a, a really strong deck that's somewhat underrated right now by the broader metagame. So it's a little bit of a, of a dark horse 
pick that some folks might not expect. I also haven't played it a ton, so it would be fun to kind of try out something new versus the the more vanilla purple decks that I've mostly been playing to get a feel for standard. I think those are the two that I would pick. Very nice. Yeah, I agree. The boom out of purple decks. It's always fun to play, in my opinion, because you just get people sometimes. But you're right. Even if they know it's coming, you can still put them in a fork with how fast you can go as purple. Right. I feel bad for your opponents, if that's the case. With that, I think we've reached the end of the episode. So I would like to remind everyone listening to the Slumscast right now, if you are not already following the Slumscast, you can follow Slumscast. I would recommend it if you liked what you heard today. And honestly, I would request it even if you didn't like what you heard, because the, the follows are good. They help us. You can find this podcast on basically any major podcast distribution network. If you liked what you heard, go ahead, leave us a review, maybe buy some merch. If you want to tell people that you like cutting the feed or that you don't listen to the Slumscast, we have shirts covered for all of that good stuff. Special thanks this episode. Ajar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been fun times. Do you have any shout outs to give while you're on the Slumscast? I have a lot of shout outs, actually. So I think I'm going to start with the local Greater Twin Cities Netrunner community, which Orbital you're also part of. So first, thank you for running so many local events. We call them off the grid events that we've run over the years that you've run, I should say, over the years I've participated in. And thanks for evangelizing the community, recruiting folks to come play in the league, etc. And thanks to the, re- the other members of that community. In particular, one person I want to shout out is Fictional, who has been one of my big testing partners for almost as long as I've been in the game. We first were starting to, to show up at local tournaments at around the same time. He was always one of the biggest threats to take down any any event. I've met him in finals and in cuts many, many times, and I've lost or won many, many times. And I think that he is a highly, highly underrated player. He's due, way overdue, to take down something big. And I would love to see him break out and and put up a big result at a high-profile event. Next group of folks who I need to shout out are the anti-folks. You know who you are. We talked about Spags a little bit. Uh, We mentioned Andries during the prepaid cake discussion. Obviously, Spags a legend, but uh, there are a lot of other people in that group who have been great to me for many years, both personally and as playtest partners in the community, both when I was just a regular player trying to get better and hone my game, giving me lists, giving me pointers, but also now they help me out a lot from the playtesting side with the bandless stuff, which is just fantastic to have so many high-level minds thinking about the ideas that you bring them and trying stuff out. So thanks a lot to the Andy crowd. Lastly, the Nisei folks, and in particular, the other members of the Standard Balance team. So, you know, you've only heard from me today, but there are five of us, Manverupt, Lost Geek, Clickwill, and Knuckle Guy. We're the current five members of the team. And, you know, we have areas we agree on, we have areas we disagree on, but I think that we work together really well as far as trying to keep in mind what we're actually trying to do. And even when we disagree, always understanding that everyone's coming from a place of good faith. We're here to just try to make the game better. And we do that by, you know, learning as much as we can about the current environment and trying to make reasonable decisions that we can you know, come to consensus on. They've been amazing to work with and Manverupt has been fantastic leader of the team. We're a tough crew of cats to herd, so that is not an easy job. It's only gonna get harder because we'll be recruiting some new members here soon. Thanks a lot to that crowd. 
it's been a pleasure to work with you thus far, and I'm looking forward to continuing to do it. Shout out to all of them. That brings us to the end of the episode. If you have any questions or comments, you out there listening to this episode, yes, I mean you, look at the show notes. You can find the best ways to reach us. The quick answer, if you don't want to look down that far, is basically Stem Slack or Twitter. We have a Gmail, but we check it approximately monthly. So that is not the most efficient way if you want things to actually get into our inboxes. If you have any concerns, that's fine. You can have them. You can also make the argument they were just making sure that they knew how good Kate was. They were just getting their 100 games in. Oh, no. <laughs> they were doing the math. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I do think Damon is is a little bit unfairly maligned at times. I, I honestly think that anytime you're a public figure, sooner or later, you're going to say something that is going to make everybody feel like you've put your foot in your mouth. So like any any designer of Netrunner who's willing to speak in public at all has a huge amount of respect from me. And I also think that, you know, for everything that I might have disagreed about that that Damon said in the past, I think he's also been proven right about a number of core claims that he made at different points that were at the time really controversial. Just as one example, uh, his statement that Jackson Howard was a crutch was, I think, proven completely correct after Jackson rotated. I think that I've said in public and in print in the past that I my opinion is that corps do need some kind of game flow control, but it doesn't have to be a card at the power level of Jackson Howard that gives you absolute control over the tempo of the game for as long as you want it. Stuff like that. I also think that, you know, there was a lot of criticism of cards like hard hitting news. I mean, I myself think that hard hitting news has kind of overstated its welcome a little bit, although I also don't think we could ban it. But if you look at the numbers on that card, when it first came out, everybody was like, what, four tags? Holy crap, how will you ever? It's led to a lot of fun and interesting games over the years that it's been in the meta with the numbers that it has. Uh, maybe it should require a successful run. Sure. But um, I have a lot of respect for Damon's willingness to try new things and push the game forward and make big claims that, you know, right or wrong, got people talking about the game. To be clear, definitely not saying that to criticize this particular statement, it's uh, yeah, for sure. a lot of respects for Damon as well. Being a Netrunner designer is incredibly hard, especially given that dealing with the public isn't necessarily the first thing that you think of when you think about the job of designing a game. And dealing with the public when they care about a game like Netrunner as much as Netrunner players care about it is hard. It absolutely is. And I think that that is one area where I, I have a huge amount of respect for Nisei's designers as well, so crit hit to twenty and uh, and June, because now you're not you're not in a corporate setting where you have um, you have sort of authority in a sense. You're the company that actually owns the game, so far as the game can be owned, or at least owns the current you know incarnation of its public availability. You have that sort of separation from the community, even if you go out in public and you go on podcasts and you participate in community events and stuff like that you're still working for the company that makes the game. Whereas now the whole thing is community driven. We're all part of the same group, which is Netrunner fans. And I think that, you know, folks who've agreed to take on the challenge of, of leading the design direction of the game, where now 
everybody has an opinion, but also we're all peers all of a sudden in a, in a kind of a strange way is, uh, is something I admire and, and something I definitely do not have the, the wherewithal, I think, to take on. I've got my hands full with my role on the balance team as it is. I want to roll back a little bit and say a couple of things. My core disagreement with Damon really comes down to killing one of my favorite decks. As a person, I love Damon. I think that he is wonderful to talk to, wonderful to hang out with, and he has designed some of my favorite cards. But I still will maintain to this day that Prepaid Kate was like his white whale. That was his anti-pet deck, you know what I mean? And I think that he hit it a little bit unfairly, but I'm trying not to be a salty person. 